A very good evening if you've just joined us on this cold and rainy Friday evening. You are tuned to Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM and it is now time for this week's edition of Great Interpreters. My name is Adrian Fuchs and in tonight's program we take a closer look at the life and art of soprano Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Dame Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, who died last year at the age of 90, was one of the most distinguished and influential singers of the 20th century and the last star of an extraordinary quintet of sopranos, all of whom emerged on the operatic scene shortly after the Second World War. Along with Victoria de los Angeles, Maria Callas, Birgit Nielsen and Renata Tabaldi, Schwarzkopf embodied, according to Patrick O'Connor of Gramophone magazine, the meaning of the term prima donna. The pristine beauty of her lyric soprano voice, her elegance, poise and charm, combined with hard work and innate intelligence, lent her performances a compelling authority, even though some, not unjustly, considered her interpretations of both opera and especially leader, mannered and artificial. But in both these fields, she gained extraordinary acclaim during a long and distinguished career that spanned more than two and a half decades. Schwarzkopf, who was born in 1915 in Jorichen, which was then part of Eastern Germany and now Poland, made her official debut at the Berlin Opera in 1938 as the first flower maiden in Parsifal and gave her final recital in Zurich in 1979. Her career can be divided into three main parts. In her young days, singing in Berlin and Vienna during and just after the Second World War, she gradually moved from the light coloratura soprano parts, Musetta, Serbinetta, Blonde and Marcellina in Fidelio to the more lyrical mature roles for which she would become famous. One of the roles which Schwarzkopf would later make her own was Donna Elvira in Mozart's Don Giovanni, in which she made her 1947 Covent Garden debut with the touring Vienna State Opera Company. Summing up that season's performances, critic Charles Stewart wrote, and I quote, Most of all, in and out of my dreams, I shall remember Schwarzkopf's Elvira, every platinum note of it. Here then is the famous aria Mitra D from Don Giovanni with the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Carlo Maria Giulini in a recording that dates from 1961. Oh, 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 oh,
The second period of Schwarzkopf's career, The Great Years, began in 1946 with her early recordings for EMI. During the peak of her operatic career in the 1950s and 60s, Schwarzkopf concentrated primarily on five roles, with Mozart providing three. Donna Alvira in Don Giovanni, already mentioned, Countess Alma Viva in Le Nozze di Figaro, and Fioriligi in Corsi Fantute, while Strauss gave the Countess in Capriccio her last new stage role, and above all, the Marcellin in Der Rosenkavalier, which is considered her greatest operatic role. As one commentator noted, it seems fitting that four of these characters were noblewomen. Schwarzkopf possessed a patrician manner, which, coupled with a generous measure of self-esteem, earned her the reputation of opera's most intimidating grand dame. Apart from these five roles, there were also characters that are not especially associated with Schwarzkopf today. Margarita in Faust, Melisande, Marenka in The Bartered Bride, and three Wagner roles, Elisabeth in Tannhäuser, Elsa in Lohengrin, and Eva in Die Meistersinger. She was a regular visitor to La Scala in Milan, where she first appeared in Le Nozze di Figaro in 1949, and was to be heard from then on until 1963 in two or three roles every season, which, as Walter Legg notes, is probably the longest and one of the most distinguished careers of any German singer at that opera house. In the last two decades of Schwarzkopf's career, during the 60s and 70s, she gradually diminished her opera performances in order to concentrate on her recital repertory, constantly expanding it. As her voice naturally became more limited in its range, she sought new ways to try and exploit the middle and lower registers to its full advantage. Each recital was such a well-constructed whole that when all the elements came together, one was, according to Patrick O'Connor, awestruck by her ability to make of every song a drama in miniature. A hard-working, self-challenging singer, Schwarzkopf performed a total of 74 roles in 53 operas, including Anne True Love in the world premiere of Stravinsky's The Rake's Progress in Venice in 1951. Her leader repertory included hundreds of songs by Schubert, Schumann, Mozart and Strauss, and she was a pioneering champion of the songs of Hugo Wolf, which she sang with insight and affecting beauty. The next recording that we will be listening to is another extract from one of the three Mozart roles which formed a core part of the Schwarzkopf operatic repertoire, that of Fiordeligi in Corsi Fantute. The aria is Comescolio from Act One, and the Philharmonia Orchestra is conducted by Karl Böhm. Thank you. 
And the aria that we just listened to was Come Scoglio from Act One of Mozart's Corsi Fantute, sung by Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Karl Böhm. The epithet, her master's voice, was not the creation of some malicious journalist, but a nickname of Schwarzkopf's own invention, which she used in describing herself. She never made a secret of the central role played in her career by her husband Walter Legg, the legendary producer of his master's voice, Columbia and EMI, who guided every stage and step of her international career. It was in Vienna that Schwarzkopf first came to the attention of Legg, who gave her a severe two-hour audition. He made her spend the best part of an hour and a half experimenting with different ways of colouring a single phrase in the Wolflied Verifdichten. Herbert von Karajan, who was also present at the audition, eventually got to his feet and declared to Legg, I'm going. You are a sadist. I told you weeks ago that she's probably the best female singer in all of Central Europe. She and Carlos were the two best I've ever had to deal with. Mm. When did you meet your wife for the first time? In Vienna? No. In Vienna, yes, of course. Yes, but you've been in the chorus at Zauberflöte yes, in Berlin. Oh, yes, I forgot. Well, I recorded uh, Zauberflöte with Beecham in Berlin when she was in the chorus. I must have been blind, I didn't see her. <laughs> Yeah, and then I met people. her. In, then I met her in. You see, I got friends of mine who were on military service in the Mediterranean to listen to the German radio and report to me anything that was particularly good. And that name cropped up. So she was one of the people I was looking for in Vienna, and uh, I invited her to have a drink at a cafe, and cafe Mozart. Cafe Mozart. Sure, next to the opera house. Officer, and uh, she said, she, "Well, I think you've told the story, haven't you?" No, I haven't told the story. What? Do I know. Uh, I, I offered her a contract, and she said, uh, "I want a proper audition." I said, "Well, I've heard you privately at a friend's house. You probably didn't know I was there." And she said, "I don't want you to buy a cat in a sack, and I don't want you to give me less than I'm worth." Well, I didn't say that. I you did. No, I'm sure I didn't. <laughs> less than you think I'm worth. Yes. And I want a proper audition, so I gave her a proper audition. And I must say, I toasted her. She had to wait three months for it, but she went through the mill. That I knew I got something that one could form into what one wanted. In 1953, Leg married Schwarzkopf, and under his guidance, her international career flourished. As Irving Colliden wrote, Leg turned Schwarzkopf an uncommonly good soprano, into a great singer. Well, Andrew Porter noted, when Leg married Schwarzkopf, two perfectionists joined forces. Opinion is divided about the effect Leg had on Schwarzkopf as an artist. He recognized that her voice was supremely musical, intelligently colored, and capable of conveying extremes of meaning. But he also realized that the voice was not exceptionally large, and that it lacked the high notes of the coloratura range. Throughout her career, all of Schwarzkopf's recordings were made under the supervision of Leg, except for song recitals recorded in Germany during the war. When a reporter once asked her whether anyone else had acted in the recording studios as her producer, she was surprised by the question and replied that she had never considered anyone else other than Leg, adding, in any case, Walter would never have allowed it. Leg played an equally important role as far as Schwarzkopf's stage appearances were concerned. He not only planned her concert programs, but coached both her and the pianist, and was also responsible for deciding on the best operatic repertoire for her career. 
he tended to treat Schwarzkopf as a musical and intellectual inferior and often berated her in public when she failed to meet his approval. One such instance occurred at a post-recital reception when he was overheard telling her, you sang that last Wolflied like a pig. It was a curious judgment, for in the opinion of many critics, Schwarzkopf's singing of Hugo Wolf represented her finest artistic achievement, art taken to its subtlest peak, as the London Times put it. Accompanist Gerald Moore, like many others, was appalled at the way Lake sometimes treated Schwarzkopf and wrote, Unquestionably, Walter indulged in delusions of grandeur, the most unacceptable being the Svengali pose towards Elizabeth. His conviction was that he was the source from which the virtuoso technique, the consummate musicianship and artistry, even the quality of tone flowed. Yet in all his statements, Schwarzkopf insisted on the artistic collaboration she enjoyed with her husband, not as a Svengali, but as someone with whom she could share the happiest moments in my life, the many hours spent in recording studios, rehearsing, studying scores, striving for perfection. I knew all those songs by heart, but I always had my scores in front of me when I was recording, because when we heard the first take, I made hundreds of signs of the things I did not like, and Mr. Leck made already signaled me of the things which were not good, which I had not perhaps heard to that extent, or he perhaps didn't think we were right in tempo anyway, we would have to start another tempo, or sometimes even to start another tonality, like half a tone down. He wanted to bring out the, the best possibility of my voice doing the best to that song, not to best the best to my voice, but the best to that particular song. He told, for instance, Gerard ever so often, the way he should pedal there and which voice, which voice in the piano should be brought out here and there. Gerard, who was marvelous, but he learned it from Walter. And, well, we rehearsed as one rehearses a, a lead. You rehearse one lead for, well, you're lucky if you get it in an hour. A lead of two minutes. If you get it all right. With the balance, with the timing, with the übergänge, with the ritardandi, with the, Crescendi start or the decrescendi start and why do they not it's not where they start but why do they start there just doing it is never enough therein lies the secret ultimately Schwarzkopf's relationship with Lake seemed a fulfilling and happy one for the soprano when a journalist once asked her whether she regretted having had no children she replied I have 500 children all the songs I sing Although Schwarzkopf recorded over 40 Schubert songs and knew at least, according to John Steen, twice that number, she did not consider herself a Schubert specialist and was increasingly doubtful about the propriety of women singing most of his songs at all. Her misgivings, notes Steen, were based partly on the fact that many of Schubert's songs were sung first by the composer's male friends. It is also a fact that the poems, written mostly by men, tell of life and love from a man's point of view. More personal, and perhaps more important, was Schwarzkopf's conviction that because the voice and the piano are so much at one in Schubert's writing, the singing voice needs to be, so to speak, within the piano, at the center of its tone. A woman's voice, especially a soprano, is of course pitched to a greater extent than a man's above and outside of the piano's tone. Nevertheless, Schwarzkopf performed a wide range of Schubert's songs, and most valuable, perhaps, according to her own criteria, are those songs composed specifically for a woman to sing. The most notable of these is Gretchen am Spinrade, and here Edwin Fischer accompanies Schwarzkopf in a 1952 recording of this famous song. 
just listen to Grechen am Spinrade, Schubert's favorite song, um, sung by Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. Schwarzkopf's favorite of all his Schubert leader recordings was that Erkönig, recorded in 1966. Interestingly, this recording was totally unplanned, and Leg sprang it on Schwarzkopf and pianist Jeffrey Parsons at the end of some long recording session in Berlin. Leg thought the time was right to record Del Erkönig, and was rewarded with a masterly performance in which, as John Steen notes, one can surely catch the excitement of challenge and spontaneity.
Schwarzkopf had a beautiful, creamy and shimmering lyric soprano voice, with an impressive technical agility and exceptional understanding of style. Her husband, producer Walter Legg, once described her as possessing a brilliant, fresh voice, shot through with laughter, not large but admirably projected, with enchanting high pianissimi. Her voice had a clear, well-focused radiance, which Schwarzkopf herself described as Zilberklang, meaning silvery-toned. The music critic Harold Rosenthal throughout her career invariably used the term whipped cream in describing her voice. 
Schwarzkopf also possessed, according to Legg, the sine qua non for international fame as a singer, an immediately recognizable and unforgettable personal timbre.
And the aria that we just listened to was Porgi Amor from Act Two of Mozart's Le Nozze di Figaro, sung, of course, by Elizabeth Schwarzkopf with the Fonomonio Orchestra conducted by Carlo Maria Giulini, and this was recorded in 1961. Critics were surprisingly divided about Schwarzkopf's basic vocal attributes. Will Crutchfield, revo- reviewing some of her live recital recordings, wrote in the New York Times in 1990, It was always clear that she had a superior voice, a smooth, glamorous lyric soprano, and superior technical command. Yet Peter Davis, writing in the Times in 1981, described her career as a triumph of intelligence and willpower over what was basically an unremarkable voice. Schwarzkopf's style of singing was a point of some controversy and makes her one of those singers you seemingly either love or hate. It's hard to describe, but it sort of sounded like she was letting her interpretation of a piece be shaped by the words instead of the notes. In trying to add textual vitality to her performances, and depending on what the words were about, Schwarzkopf would often resort to crooning and half-spoken dramatic effects, or in the words of one writer, even bark certain passages for emphasis, even if a melody was being repeated. If the words were different, she would respond to that and sing the melody somewhat differently again, and in this regard, her style was similar to the over-emphasize every word approach of Dietrich Fischer-Dischgau, with whom she made several recordings. Some critics have even argued that Schwarzkopf's tendency to croon instead of singing full voice may have been a way of disguising weak spots in her voice. Schwarzkopf's minute attention to detail and emphasize every word approach to interpretation often led her detractors to label her performances mannered, calculated, artificial and arch. The Prussian perfectionist one critic called her. The late critic B.H. Hagen once complained of Schwarzkopf's excessively mannered and affected phrasing and expressive hamming, exaggerated pouting, archness, gasps and whispers, while other commentators have noted that there are times in her performances when one can hardly hear the music for the interpretation. As a result of this, the term interventionist has gained currency when evaluating Schwarzkopf's qualities. This term is applied to singers, and most especially Schwarzkopf and Fischer Diskau, whose interpretive energy has played such a prominent part in their work that it is sought to become distracting and to come between the listener and the song or aria itself. Schwarzkopf was a hard taskmaster, and most of all when it came to herself. She was also undoubtedly her own harshest critic. Don't think that I think everything I do is wonderful, she once noted. There are some recordings where I hear things that I wouldn't let any student get away with. I do not possess the facility which everyone so generously attributes to me, she stated in an interview, but that doesn't really matter. What, after all, is the most important thing in a performance? To give the illusion of facility. For nothing is worse than to see the person who is aiming to give you pleasure making an effort. Whatever people may think, I do not have the perfectly natural voice which some other singers possess. It is not difficult to dismiss Schwarzkopf's self-critical statements regarding her technical facility, especially when one listens to recordings such as the following of Bach's Cantata No. 51, Jauchzet Gott in Allen London, which demonstrates Schwarzkopf's incredible vocal agility. The recording dates from 1950 and features the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Peter Gellhorn. The obligato trumpet part is played by Harold Jackson. Ja, 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 
And we have just listened to Jauchzet Gott in Allen London, the cantata number 51 by Johann Sebastian Bach, sung by Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Peter Gellhorn. Schwarzkopf is often represented critically as the archetype of the analytical singer. She had a single-minded approach to her work, studying scores with an almost forensic attention to detail, invariably in collaboration with Leg, and rehearsing tirelessly in order to achieve her artistic goals. Schwarzkopf denied, however, that she was in any way an intellectual. A lot of the things she did as a singer, she claimed, were instinctive. What mattered to her, above all, was the emotional dramatic content. She often said that she was a chamber musician at heart. If it didn't touch me, I didn't sing it. The mezzo-soprano Christa Ludwig, who collaborated on several recordings with Schwarzkopf, once noted, she was the ultimate perfectionist. Sometimes she may not have sung from her heart, but she always sang with perfection, and this perfection could sometimes touch her fellow artists and listeners deeply. Schwarzkopf could also be a polarizing figure, both musically and politically. One such instance was in the early 1950s, when she became the center of a heated musical controversy when it was revealed that she had dubbed two high C's to a recording of Tristan und Isolde by the aging Kirsten Flagstad, who was having difficulties with her upper register. The substitution was carefully accomplished, and nobody would have likely found out about it had it not been for the ferocious hunger for gossip within the opera world. Purists were scandalized. They thought the whole thing smacked of fakery. One musician who thought otherwise was the pianist Glenn Gould, who considered the loan of the two C's a professional courtesy from one artist to another, all to the creation of a more perfect recording. Although rumours of Schwarzkopf's involvement with the National Socialist Party during the Second World War had been circulating for years, the subject remained a sensitive issue for the soprano, and for some time she fervently denied having been a member. In 1996, British musicologist Alan Jefferson caused a considerable stir when he published a definitive account of Schwarzkopf's Nazi involvement. According to Jefferson, Schwarzkopf had joined the National Socialist Party in the early years of the Second World War, had appeared in a handful of German propaganda films and sang in a single performance of Die Fledermaus in Paris in 1941, staged specifically for the benefit of the German occupying forces. He also attributed the early success of her career to her liaisons and connections with several top Nazi leaders. Schwarzkopf's most personal statement on her wartime legacy came in a letter she wrote to the New York Times in 1983. Her membership to the Nazi party was, according to her, akin to joining a union, and exactly for the same reason, to have a job. My father, she continued, urged me to join, as he himself was a victim of Nazi procedure, having refused to join and consequently having lost his position as a principal at the local high school. Nothing was more important to him than my singing. Although it was never in my repertoire, I cannot help but quote Tosca, Fissi d'arte, I lived for art. Whatever Schwarzkopf's true involvement with the Nazi party, her past did little to dim her popularity. She was knighted by Queen Elizabeth II in 1992 and her recordings continued to be esteemed by critics and music buyers alike. Now one of the earliest recordings that exist of Schwarzkopf is a version of Puccini's O mio babino caro, recorded in 1948 with the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Herbert von Karajan. The recording is extraordinary for a number of reasons, not least for the incredibly slow tempo chosen by Schwarzkopf and Karajan, but also for her wondrous legato sound. Here then is O mio babino caro, sung by Elizabeth Schwarzkopf.
Another infamous Schwarzkopf scandal occurred in 1958 when she was invited to select her eight favorite recordings for the BBC's Desert Island Discs program. Of the eight recordings, she chose all but one of her own, a gesture which, as her biographer Alan Jefferson noted, made her famous to countless radio listeners who had never previously heard of her and resulted in some commentators criticizing her for narcissism to the point of incest. Schwarzkopf's choice, however, was, according to some, due to the influence of her husband Walter Legg. In private, she remarked that she disliked many of her recordings, and interestingly, in an interview for the BBC Transcription Service, only a few weeks after the Desert Island Discs broadcast, she was quoted as saying, I hate all my records. Yet Schwarzkopf's recorded legacy was indeed impressive. One recording in particular, her ravishing version of the four last songs by Richard Strauss, recorded with George Tell and the Berlin Radio Orchestra in 1965, became one of EMI's best-selling classical discs, a desert island recording if ever there was one, as the Penguin Record Guide pointedly observed. This recording, which I am now going to play to you, was in fact her second recording of the work, recorded 12 years after her first version made in 1953 with Otto Ackerman conducting the London Philharmonia. Both versions are generally considered by many to be definitive. In one of Terence McNally's plays, for example, one vocal aficionado challenges another by asking the question, So, which four last songs do you like? Schwarzkopf or Schwarzkopf? Though lacking the youthful exuberance of the earlier version, the intervening 12 years between the two recordings had certainly brought with it a certain experience and depth to Schwarzkopf's interpretation. While her voice had mellowed, it was also richer, warmer, and even more accurately focused in the latter recording. Of this latter version, Gramophone Magazine's reviewer wrote, A heavenly record, so beautiful that I find it goes against the grain to try and attempt to analyze it. Here then is the Fee Let's the Leader, Opus Posthumus by Richard Strauss, Frühling, September, Beim Schlafen Gehen and Im Abendrot, with Elizabeth Schwarzkopf and the Radio Symphony Orchestra of Berlin, conducted by George Zell.
The music that we've just listened to was, of course, Richard Strauss's Viel Letzte Lieder, with Schwarzkopf and the Radio Symphony Orchestra Berlin, conducted by George Chell, and this was recorded in 1965. For a period of approximately two decades, Schwarzkopf represented for many listeners, along with her male counterpart, Dietrich Fischer-Diskau, the supreme exponent of the art of leader singing, a sublime artist who brought textual nuance, scrupulous detail, interpretive subtlety and elegant musicianship to her work. Like Fischer-Diskau, Schwarzkopf sang a far larger and more ambitious repertory of song than any of her predecessors, taking advantage of the long playing record's appearance to commit to disc a vast quantity of material. Schwarzkopf considered the pioneering influence of her leader performances and recordings as her greatest contribution to the art of singing. In the autobiographical film, Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, A Self-Portrait, she stated, I have often been asked what I think the most important thing is that I have done in my life through my singing, and my answer might surprise you. It wasn't any role, or any scala, Bayreuth, Salzburg or Vienna, or anything of that kind. It was to confront our previous enemies again with the German language, via leader singing. Schwarzkopf devoted much attention to Hugo Wolf, a composer whom Leg was particularly fond of, and whose songs he had championed for many years. According to Patrick O'Connor of Gramophone magazine, it was one of Schwarzkopf's greatest achievements to bring Wolf's songs to the widest possible audience at a time when the lit was hardly in fashion. I would now like to play to you three songs from Wolf's Italienisches Liederbuch with texts by Heiser. First up is Auch Kleine Dinge, followed by Mein Liebster ist so klein and Ich habe in Penna. The pianist is Gerald Moore, and these songs were recorded in 1961.
We've just listened to three songs from the Italianisches Liederbuch um, by Hugo Wolf with text by Heiser and the performer, of course, Elisabeth Schwarzkopf and the pianist Gerald Moore. And this was recorded in 1961. Apart from Schwarzkopf's regular partnerships with the accompanists Gerald Moore and later Jeffrey Parsons, she had, as Lake called it, a rare luxury in pianists as partners, a list of prominent performers that included, amongst others, Edwin Fischer, Wilhelm Furtwängler, Sariata Schlafrichter, Walter Gissiging, and even Glenn Gould, though he only performed with Schwarzkopf in the recording studio. The next two audio tracks are from Wolf's Spanisches Liederbuch and Goethe Lieder, respectively. First up is In dem Schatten meiner Locken, recorded in 1957, followed by the famous song Mignot, also known as Kennst du das Land, recorded in 1960. The accompanist for both recordings is Gerald Moore. Ich in der Freude, 
And the two tracks that we just listened to were In dem Schatten meiner Locken from the Spanish Liederbuch by Hugo Wolf, as well as Minho or Kennst du das Land from the Goethe Lieder, sung by Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. And both tracks were accompanied by Gerald Moore, the first recorded in 1957 and the second in 1960. And now for a bit of fun. Here is Schwarzkopf performing the song Mausch Fallen Sprüchlein from Wolf's Mürike Lieder. The accompanist is again Gerald Moore, and this recording dates from 1954. Schwarzkopf's most celebrated role was as the Marscheline in Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier, a character whom she made winningly flirtatious. Her 1956 collaboration with Karajan and the Philharmonia remains most collector's first choice of recording. Lake described the music and text as honey for a fine leader singer's subtle art, and therefore ideally suited to Schwarzkopf. The first extract that I would like to play to you from Der Rosenkavalier is Da Geter In from Act One. Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, of course, is the soprano, and the Philharmonia Orchestra is conducted by Herbert von Karajan, and this recording dates from 1956.
Despite Schwarzkopf's success and experience in the role, she failed to win approval amongst the British critics when she made her keenly awaited Covent Garden debut as the Marcheline in 1959. The general objection was that her Marcheline was cold and coquettish. Harold Rosenthal felt it was a case of art failing to conceal art, and one must regretfully register the major disappointment. Hermione Gingold wrote, Art, dear, she's more art than the Admiralty. Schwarzkopf was furious and swore that she would never again set foot on the London Opera stage, a promise she kept. Her last full performance in an opera house was in Der Rosenkavalier at the Monai in Brussels just after Christmas in 1967. Her official farewell to opera came in the same theatre on New Year's Eve 1971. Rosenkavalier again, but only the first act. The next extract that I would like to play to you from Der Rosenkavalier is the famous trio Habmir Gelobt from Act 3, here, of course, is Elizabeth Schwarzkopf as the Marshalin. Octavian is sung by Christa Ludwig and Sophie by Theresa Stich-Randall. The Philharmonia Orchestra of London is conducted by Herbert von Karajan and the recording is from 1956.
Extract that we just listened to was the trio from Act Three of the Rosenkavalier, Habmir's Gelobt, featuring Elizabeth Schwarzkopf, Christa Ludwig, and Theresa Stichrandl, and the Philharmonia Orchestra of London was conducted by Herbert von Karajan in the famous 1956 recording. Following a withdrawal from the opera stage, Schwarzkopf focused her energy on leader recitals, usually with Geoffrey Parsons as accompanist, and always carefully masterminded by Leg, who was ever attentive to the hall and the potential audience. Each of her recitals, according to Patrick O'Connor, was such a well-constructed whole that when all the elements came together, one was awestruck by her ability to make every song a drama in miniature. In 1978, however, Schwarzkopf's concert performances eventually came to an end with a farewell performance at the Wigmore Hall in London, followed by a final appearance in March 1979 in Zurich. Three days after that last recital, Lake died from a heart attack at their home in Switzerland, and Schwarzkopf was never again to sing in public. She found, however, a renewed outlet for her energy in her teaching and in the many master classes that she presented in successive years. These classes provided magnificent insights into her art, and she impressed as a teacher whose sharp ears missed nothing and whose impeccable standards seemed never to be satisfied. If there ever was an artist who reached the pinnacle of her profession through long and diligent study, constant hard work, and the most searching self-criticism, that artist is Elizabeth Schwarzkopf. According to some, the best evaluation of her genius remains that of the esteemed English critic John Steen, who wrote in his invaluable book The Great Tradition, with Schwarzkopf's performances, the thought and art are so marvellously exact that one wants to call them calculated, which immediately suggests something unfeeling and insincere. Yet this is self-evidently absurd, 
for insincerity, like sentimentality, betrays itself by inexactness and distortion. What one has in Schwarzkopf is a high degree of awareness, of colors and styles, and of the existence of choice. In so many ways, according to Steen, Schwarzkopf embodied the very best of the European singing tradition of our time. The critic Thomas Voigt furthermore noted that with Schwarzkopf, the art is in the details, a statement especially true of her leader recordings. Few singers have been able to transfer this art to the stage, concert platform, or the recorded medium with such mastery as she did. I would like to end tonight's program with two extracts. One is of the, an extract from one of the famous Viennese champagne operators that Schwarzkopf recorded for EMI. But before that, I would like to play you the song Wien du Stadt meiner Träume by Rudolf Sisinski, recorded in 1959 with the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by Otto Ackermann. And this will be followed by Klinge der Heimat from Act Two of Johann Strauss's Die Fledermaus from the famous 1955 recording. I hope you enjoyed tonight's program with me. May you have a lovely weekend. Keep warm and safe. Until next time, good night.
Look, 
Schau, 